The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Thanks, Kylam, for the invitation to be here. Kylam and I met at, at a lunch seven years ago. We, uh, Matt Chandler was over, and I ended up sitting beside this guy, and we just started to chat, and he explained to me how he was, he was leading, leading a church. And I said, oh, what training did you get? And he said, a cert four in youth work. And, and I said, okay, um, I think we can probably help kind of backfill as you lead the church. It's been a great journey. Many, many subjects have you left to do, Kylam? One? Five? Oh, well, nearly one. He's n- That's good. We'll get you a little bit longer. Next year, God willing, we'll be saying goodbye to him. But what it has meant is that as, as God has, has been working here and growing the church, kind of from Launton and then kind of upstairs beside Ikea and finally here, that as God has grown you, we've been rejoicing with you and cheering you on. And it's great to be here this morning and to think a little bit about what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus. Why don't we pray together and we'll jump right into 1 Peter 2. Father, thank you for your mercy to people like us, that you make us part of your family that you give us each other, and above all, you give us the Lord Jesus. So we pray that today, as we open your word, that we would hear you speak, that we might see what it means to belong to the Lord Jesus, and how you've set us up to live for you in a way that brings Jesus glory. So work in us to that end, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're serious about living for the Lord Jesus. If, if you want to be the real deal, if you want to start now and keep following them wholeheartedly for the rest of your lives, if you want to be changed, if you want to grow, or if you'd really like to know what this Christianity caper is all about, you need to get your head around two key things, being and doing. At the end of the day, Christianity is about who we are in Christ, and what we do in the resources that He Himself supplies through the Spirit. And this morning, we're going to look at what one part of the Bible says about those two things, who we are, what we're supposed to do. Now, if you know much about the Bible, you might have picked up that the Apostle Peter was one of the loudest of Jesus' first followers often called the apostles, the disciples. Peter was one of those guys who either got it spectacularly right, either absolutely nailed it, or got it completely wrong. And you see that over and over again when he's around Jesus. He's either the first one to get what Jesus is talking about, or the last. Now, his intentions were always good, but the follow-through, that was a bit patchy. So when Jesus was arrested, it's Peter who's there at his side, albeit with his sword drawn, ready to fight for him. When all the other disciples scatter, Peter follows Jesus all the way, listening to his trial. But then it was Peter who buckled when a servant girl and two of her friends said, weren't you with Jesus? But now fast forward 20 years, and this same Peter is one of the key leaders of the movement we call the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, despite the fact that Peter had been leading the original Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem for all those years, 
despite his initial reservations about non-Jews joining the church, another one of those Peter moments that you read about in Acts 13, as he gets to the end of his life, Peter's great concern is that Gentile Christians, like people like most of us, I'm guessing, people who are not from a Jewish background, scattered across his part of the world, are able to keep going and keep growing and stay fresh as they follow Jesus under the pressure of a fairly hostile society. So he writes this letter to help people like us keep going. At the end of chapter 1, Peter has just urged his readers to set their hope fully on the grace that will appear in Jesus, with Jesus Christ by loving one another deeply, earnestly from the heart. He wants us to live all out for Jesus. He says, you've got to embrace the word that was preached to you. You've got to be the real deal. But what does that look like? Well, spoiler alert, I've already told you. For Peter, the secret of holiness, that is being pure and different like the Lord Jesus, or the secret of godliness, which is essentially being consistent and acting with relentless integrity like the Lord Jesus, the secret is not actually complicated. So remember who we are and what we're supposed to do. What does that look like? Now, one of the characteristics of Peter's writing is that he swings rapidly from telling us who we are, making reassuring statements about what God has done to us in the Lord Jesus, to switching quickly to what we're supposed to do, back and forward. The Apostle Paul's a bit different when he writes letters, like in Ephesians, you know, three chapters, this is who you are. Have you got this? Right, chapters four to six, this is what you're supposed to do. Peter's not quite so kind of organized. First Peter is more of a roller coaster ride. One minute we're soaring on top, admiring the view as we delight in everything that God has done to us through his word. And then without any notice, we're hurtling downwards into the twists and turns of some of the most demanding instructions of the New Testament. So hold on tight. Peter gives us in these verses a rip-roaring, soul-searching, deepest need satisfying three-step guide to living a gospel-shaped life of godliness. And there's no mucking around. He jumps right in, in verse one, and he says the first thing, don't be selfish. If we're going to be the real thing, if we're going to love each other with a kind of gospel-shaped, gospel-empowered love that Peter describes in his letter, it will involve this, ridding yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. God's work in us, you see, through his word, moves us both to love other people and to deal with anything that would hinder that love. You see, living in Christ, being a Christian, involves being ruthless with sin in general and these love-killing sins in particular. For a start, Peter says, just get rid of all malice. That's any desire to cause other people harm. Now, honestly, what would drive us to be malicious? Well, I think one of two things. Either we've been hurt ourselves and almost without thinking about it, just want to take it out on other people, or simply we take pleasure in other people's pain. 
It's a horrible thing. But either way, malice flows from a mindset that says, I am all that matters. My pain, my pleasure. Peter says there's no room for that in the family of the Lord Jesus. He's treasured us so much that he's died for us. We can't just say it's all about me. Then he says we're to get rid of all deceit. Now, we lie when what we want or looking good or feeling good about ourselves matters more than anyone or anything else. We lie to protect ourselves and to promote ourselves. He said when we lie, we're actually saying, I am what really matters here. And there's no room for that in the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has already brought our sinfulness out into the open by dying for us. We've got nothing to hide and nothing to prove. So Peter says, just stop lying. Now, as if that isn't enough, Peter insists that we're to get rid of hypocrisy. (coughs) Hypocrisy is uh, pretending that we are nicer than we are. So if you think through the implications of that, It means that I am standing in front of a room full of hypocrites and you are being preached to by a hypocrite. We all like to pretend we're a little nicer than we actually are. See, hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. It's teaching one thing, doing another. But hypocrisy can only exist when we've chosen to ignore what the gospel says about us. That we are so sinful that Jesus himself had to die for us. So when I protest that my motives were actually pure, when I make no real effort to actually face or deal with my sin, when I'm really quick to highlight the significant flaws that you all have without ever facing mine, I'm being a hypocrite. It's essentially about having too high a view of ourselves. And there's no room for that in the family of the Lord Jesus. Because this family, the people of God, the church, is actually made up of people who know that we're nothing more than forgiven sinners, who love each other not because we're lovable, but simply because we're loved. So, No malice, no deceit, no hypocrisy. He's not done yet. He says, you've got to get rid of envy as well. Now, the problem behind envy is, envy is based on rating people. I compare you to me, and if you come out better, it means you're higher than the ladder than me. But the problem is, because I really care about where I am on the ladder, you're above me. So that means I really need to find a way either to climb above you, which is hard, or to bring you down, which is relatively easy. You see, envy flows from the fact that we've forgotten that our self-worth actually comes from the fact that we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the single most important thing about me and about every one of us who's entrusted our lives to the Lord Jesus. That's the only rating that actually matters. We're all one in Christ, which is also why we're to get rid of slander. Now, slander is not just spreading lies about people. One writer says, all you need to slander someone is a few well-timed words that carry insinuations. 
I think that's quite helpful. See, in a way, slander is just a more subtle form of envy. Envy generally aims to bring people down who we think are above us. We slander people when we're trying to do that. Or sometimes we slander people when we're acting that we're superior to them. Now, if you're really clever, you can slander people without even sounding mean. No? Yes, that was a good job for him. Yes, she's a lovely person. Have you met her kids? I know their, their church is growing. There are some great things happening. And they're Presbyterians. Yeah. See, there's no room for that kind of subtle slander in the family of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because we're all unprofitable servants. We're family. We're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I suspect that Peter could have added another five love-destroying vices that need to be eradicated from the church, but he didn't need to. He's gone self-love, self-promotion, self-deception, self-aggrandizement, self-indulgence, a lack of self-awareness, and a complete absence of dying to self are the very antithesis of what God has called us to and equipped us for in the Lord Jesus. So he says... Stop it. All of it. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's not particularly subtle. And Pete, Peter certainly isn't su subtle here. Now, I don't want to labor this. We've still got nine verses to go, but I don't want to skim over it. This stuff really matters. Now, if you're anything like me, I have no doubt that you'll be able to come up with all kinds of, of excuses for unloving behavior towards other people, even here in the family of God. But let's face the fact that they're excuses, and we need to stop making them. We need to stop being selfish. And we do actually have to do this constantly. This is a lifelong project. Whether we've been a Christian for 20 minutes or 20 years, this is what we're called to. So given that, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask, which of these is lurking in your heart right now? Malice, deceit, envy. As you listen to yourself speak, have you managed to subdue the nagging voice of your conscience as you speak wisdom to other people while you know you're being a fool? Or could it be that you become an expert in the quietly damning, slightly amusing put-down? as you simultaneously demonstrate your own great insight and the weaknesses of others. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what flavor selfishness takes, but I'm willing to bet that it's there. So if you're anything like me, what are you to do? Stop it. Because these love-killing sins don't fit with who God is or who we are. Sinners who are loved by God ourselves and called to love God and other people. Okay, so don't be selfish. That's the first thing. The second thing is in verses 2 to 3. See, a wholesale moral clean-out should lead us to the vivid positive command to act like babies. Now, I realize some of us don't actually need any encouragement to act like babies. As we've just seen, we can be selfish without even trying. But Peter's just told us not to be selfish, so he's clearly thinking of something else. 
So he says, like newborn infants, babies, crave pure spiritual milk that you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, that's actually a pretty graphic and noisy illustration Peter gives. If you've ever been around a newborn baby, I don't know if you've noticed their craving for milk is not done quietly. They scream. And when they feed, they suck as if their life depended on it, which, come to think of it, it actually does. And that's Peter's point. Peter says, if you're going to live as part of God's family, if you're going to set your hope fully on the grace of the Lord Jesus, if you're going to pursue holiness, growing godliness, you'll need to crave spiritual milk as if your life depends on it. Now, the word translated spiritual here is a funny word, but it's actually better translated as wordish. Now, we don't have an English word, which is why they've gone with spiritual. But the milk that he's talking about is wordish milk. We're actually to crave the pure milk of the word, to crave hearing God speak through the scriptures. Now, to be honest, I don't think there's any more reliable guide of where we're at in our relationship with God at any moment than our desire to hear God speak through His Word. Whether it's reading it ourselves or hearing it it explained, if we don't feel like thirsty, hungry babies, there is something badly wrong. Because according to Peter, the mark of spiritual vitality is to be hooked on the Word, drinking it in at every given opportunity. That's why it's always worrying if people kind of don't show up in church. That's why it's worrying if you tell people that they, they're, they're willing to if people tell you they're willing to serve and to do stuff, but they don't actually want to be here when the Bible's being explained. That's why it worries me when I hear myself or hear other people critique a talk rather than saying, this is what God has been teaching me. Now, I know from my own experience that the health of my own relationship with Jesus is married exactly in my appetite to hear him speak. It's so important here that, you see, Peter goes so far as to say that our ultimate salvation depends on it. He says real Christians keep going because they keep growing because they keep on craving the milk of the Word. And that's not something we could ever slack off on. Um, let me tell you about my father-in-law. He's now 83. Um, one stage he was a missionary in Peru. Then he was a pastor in Scotland. <laughs> he loved COVID. He had, oh, he had his wife. Like, not, not the, you know, the, 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 obviously the disease or you know, the ramifications. But in lockdown, they used to go to church five times without leaving their living room. No, and our family's kind of scattered across the world. And they went, they went to all their kids' churches as well as their own and another one in the city that they have contact with. For their, it was just, it was heaven. Like, and, and my father-in-law, like five Bible talks a day, bring it on. He used to go to a Bible convention um, in Keswick in the Lake District in England and for him, the saddest moment in the history of the convention was at their e- when at their evening meeting, they abandoned the practice of having two 40-minute talks and just dropped down to one 50-minute. You know? they're, they're really a bit lightweight over there. You know? 
But he's 83. He's been a missionary in South America. He was a pastor for 35 years. And now he's kind of like a newborn baby craving pure spiritual milk. He gets 1 Peter 2 too. He's still craving it. Now, my great longing is that my hunger for the word just increases like that. And I pray the same for you. In one way, all it should take is for, for someone to stand up and say, someone's now going to open the Bible and teach us from it to, to get our juices flowing. Just look at, at what Peter says in verse 3. He turns to one of his favorite Psalms, it's Psalm 34, which he quotes a couple of times in this letter. And it's a psalm for sufferers in which David, King David, was rescued from his, in the middle of all his kind of hassle. And Peter says, a bit like David when he was rescued, now that you've experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, it's a complete no-brainer to long for the strengthening nourishment of his word. Now that you've seen how good Christ is, is by the Spirit, he's opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel, then keep drinking something that's deeply nutritious, the pure wordish milk that Christ offers us. So we're to perform this moral clean-out that gets rid of anti-love selfishness. We're to make sure that we keep developing our taste for the pure milk of the world. Now, here's a simple diagnostic test that will tell you whether your attitude and your appetite is right. Answer this question. What is God teaching me right now? Today. Okay, we'll show some grace yesterday or today. Uh, we could maybe stretch to Friday, no? But beyond that, if you can't answer the question, then you probably need to get used to craving milk again. Because God deals with us in a daily fresh way. He has so much to teach us, so many things to correct, so many things to remind us of. And if to answer that question, you have to stretch back three months or three years, uh, it's not very fresh, is it? If you can't remember the last time you were thrilled or flattened or sobered or exposed, then you may be losing your appetite. So what do you need to do? Well, confess it, run back to God and say, I'm sorry, please, will you refresh this, stir this up in me? Because I really am a baby and I need it. Now, at this point, Peter quite unexpectedly shifts from what we need to do to who we are. Because remember, the Bible never just gives us a list of stuff to do without reassuring us that God has already given us the resources we need to do it in the Lord Jesus. Peter's no different. So he says, don't be selfish, act like babies. And then verses 4 to 10, remember you're a temple. Now, this is a very strange picture, for us at least. But it's vital that we get our heads around what Peter's saying as we think about who we are, which will enable us to keep doing the things we should. He says, you're a living temple. And then he gives them a kind of guided tour. And he starts with the obvious but most important fact that Jesus Christ himself is the foundation of this temple. Okay? 
We're built on Jesus. That much is clear from verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, we become part of this temple. See, the standout feature of this temple that Peter's giving us the guided tour of is that Jesus Christ, the living stone, the one who came to life in the resurrection, he's the one who holds everything together. Everything is built on and holds together in the Lord Jesus. Peter then actually quotes the Old Testament three times to make sure we get the fact that this really is the message of the whole Bible, that Jesus stands at the center. Verse 6, Isaiah 28, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. That's Jesus. Psalm 118, I thank, me, I thank you that you've answered me and become your salva my salvation. The stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing. Isaiah 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It's like we walked into this temple, and in the middle of this building, there is this whacking great enormous rock. And Peter says, that's Jesus. He's the giant, unavoidable, crucial foundation stone that dominates the building. We can't avoid him. I mean, when any time people come into a gathering of people here at Life Center or any church of the Lord Jesus, he should be utterly unavoidable. We should never be able to miss that he is our everything. See, that passage in Isaiah just makes it clear that God sent Jesus, appointed him for honor and glory. And if, we're, if we belong to him, we get to share in that honor and glory. And if we don't belong to him, we'll fall flat in our faces over this massive foundation stone. The Psalm 118 quotation speaks to the rejection of God's king by enemy nations. Jesus himself had taken it up in Matthew 20, 21 and said, well, by killing me, this is what you're doing. You're falling over this stone. But you fall over this stone and it will fall on you. Jesus and disrespecting Jesus is not to be recommended. Similarly, Isaiah 8. We are a new and living temple built on the stunning, divisive, unavoidable, confronting reality of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, this is quite arresting, but it's also strangely reassuring. Because we, if we are a temple that has Jesus dominating the building... Well, the whole Bible leads us to expect that that means the existence of this temple will divide people. People will inevitably bump into and trip over Jesus and become cranky. They always have, and they always will. Peter adds at the end of the third quotation from Isaiah, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. See, what they were experiencing, what we face day by day, is that as we share the gospel with people, some people are drawn to Christ and some people reject Christ. That doesn't take God by surprise. Shouldn't take us by surprise or even worry us overly. 
Because if we're a living temple built on the Lord Jesus, if he's the foundation, the cornerstone, it underwrites everything. So in verse 5, then we discovered if Jesus is the foundation, then we're the walls. We're the superstructure of this temple. What does that mean? To verse 5, it means we are God's much-loved residence. Have you ever loved a house? I think our, I, live, I love our house. Fiona and I counted up the other day. We live in Ashgrove, uh, just the, uh, this side of the river. Um, I, think we've lived in, I think we've lived in 18 houses all over the world, but we've now lived in this house for um, 10 and a half years. It's a very quirky house. I am completely impractical, and our house looks like it's been owned by a succession of people like me for the last hundred years. Everything is wonky in our house. Yep. But when I step out of the bedroom in the morning, we just look over a creek down to the city. There's space. There's light. I love it. But actually, what I love most about it is, as a family, we've lived in it for, for ten and a half years. Every room is just full of memories of people and experiences, you know, even the weird bits. And the picture of God building us into this spiritual temple is a remarkable one because it speaks of God's love for us. That Jesus was chosen by God and precious to him, but we also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, you don't find this image anywhere else in the Bible. The Holy Spirit himself joins us to the big living stone, and we become like little living stones who together are built into a living, breathing, vibrant community where God himself is present by the Spirit. One writer makes the delightful suggestion that Peter kind of gets caught up in this because his, he was Petros. Peter, that was his nickname. It means really pebble. He was the pebble guy. He was into stones. But whether or not that's why Peter calls us living stones, it's important we get how reassuring this is. The picture works at two levels. First, we are part of something huge and imposing and unshakable. I think that's really encouraging, isn't it? You know, here we are in a school hall in North Brisbane. At one level, the people of North Lakes are not quaking, you know, at the massed forces of Life Center, ready to sweep down into the city, taking all before them. But they kind of should be. <laughs> because here, along with God's people meeting all across our city and all across our world today, we are part of something remarkable that will endure forever. That's encouraging. But the other part of this picture is that because we are living stones being built in the wall of this temple, it, the idea is not, you know, like the old Pink Floyd song, like we're all just bricks, another brick in the wall. We've all been kind of, you know, forced into a mold and we're all nameless and insignificant and irrelevant. No, we're actually part of this building where God himself dwells. 
because we are a spiritual temple. What it means is whatever else goes on, when we gather here week by week, God Himself is present. Every temple in the Bible, the Garden of Eden that's kind of set up like a temple to the tent of meeting that the Israelites had, to Solomon's temple, to Herod's temple, they're all pictures of being in the presence of God. And they all build up to what Peter says is here, the real thing where we get to experience the presence of the living God somehow as He speaks to us through His Word by His Spirit. He is here, and we get a foretaste of what it's going to be like to enjoy Him forever in the new creation. That's a big deal. And that's the primary implication of the fact that we as stones who share in Jesus' resurrection life get to be built around the massive stone. So do you want to be holy? Do you want to be godly? Do you want to change? Do you want to keep go going? It actually comes with being part of the house of the living God. You are part of this temple, so do stuff with the rest of the temple. Like what Peter says in verse 5 and 9 and 10. We actually get to offer spiritual sacrifices. See, the image morphs here so that rather than just being the walls of the temple, it turns out we're the priests in this temple too. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We're not just part of the furniture, we can work here as well. Peter's picking up language from Exodus 19, where God had said to the people of Israel, if you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession throughout all nations. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. See, the potential which Israel never reached in the Old Testament was to be a community whose life was lived up close with God himself. Back in the day in the Old Testament, they had a, the tent, the Holy of Holies, Kind of that's where God's presence was. You moved out a bit. You know, only the high priest could go in there once a year. You move out a little bit. Oh, the, the priests could get to go around this bit. If you were part of the tribe of Levi, but not from Aaron's family, you got to get a little bit nearer. But if you were an Israelite, you were kind of, you know, out in the oval. You were miles off. In the New Testament, no barriers everybody's the same. We're all here in the presence of the living God. We all get to offer these spiritual sacrifices. What are they? Well, Peter doesn't tell us here, but the rest of the New Testament makes, makes it pretty clear that it really is serving and following Jesus. It could be a sacrifice of praise, according to Hebrews 13. We, giving to the poor is a sacrifice. Living the Christian life is a sacrifice, according to Paul in Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're just to live together for the Lord Jesus in every part of life. See, Jesus is the massive rock at the center, and you know, we're the walls enjoying God's presence. We get to offer these sacrifices. And Peter says at the NPS, this is all designed for publicity. Look at verses 9 and 10. God has done all this so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The reason that God has built this living temple so that we, these living stones, this unique priesthood, 
can rave about his character and his wisdom and his actions so that more and more people might see how great the Lord Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit actually are. Back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 42 and 49, God had said that Israel's chosen nation was to be a light to the nations. Never really worked. But now that Christ has come, now that the living stone has been raised from the dead, he's drawn us together as these living stones. He's built us into this temple that we might proclaim him to anyone who would listen and to everyone who won't, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why God has rescued us. In, in Hosea chapter 2, we find one of the most vivid pictures of God's relentless forgiveness in the Old Testament. A prophet takes back his adulterous wife. Now God takes back his people. The same grace is applied to us. He quotes Hosea. Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. Once you not received mercy, now you have received mercy. We're the people of God. We've been brought to life in Christ. We're being built into a living temple. We're Jesus the King's very own priesthood. We have been shown mercy. Now we've been given the job of holding out that mercy to others, of proclaiming the gospel of Christ while we have breath. This is what the temple is for, to declare the excellencies of the one who's brought, who's brought us from darkness to his glorious light. You want to grow in holiness and godliness? starts with remembering who we are, then sucking in that milk so that we grasp that more and more as we gather and share life together and spur each other on as this living temple, and we show the world how marvelous our Lord Jesus is together. So in this thrilling installment of Peter's switchback blend of remembering who we are in Christ and telling us what we need to do, He's called us to deal with selfishness in a root and branch way in the power of the Spirit. He says, be thirsty babies who crave the pure milk of the Word. He says, remember that you're a living temple. But so what? Well, if we take this seriously, then we will be people right now and for the rest of our lives who are committed to living this out committed to the painful process of facing together and killing off together love-killing sin in the power of the Spirit. Nothing will, will matter more to us or occupy more of our time and effort than being the church of the Lord Jesus in front of a watching world. We'll do all that we can to spur each other on to develop a growing appetite for the milk of the Word, to be nourished ourselves and to nourish others. And then, because we know who we are, we'll be dauntless, courageous, even fearless, because we know we are the living temple of the Lord Jesus, whose reason for existence is proclamation of the great news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. See, this is not all that complicated. This is who we are. This is what we must do as holy people. This is how to grow in holiness as people who belong to God. This is how to be godly. So in the strength that God himself has already supplied, 
because of who we are, because of what he asks of us. Let's get on with it in the strength that he supplies. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.